0: Happy Saturday! Today's classic is brought to you by a tidbit of information that I stumbled across completely at random while doing research on something else entirely. It's about Edward Jenner, known as the father of immunology, thanks to his lifetime spent working with smallpox vaccines.
1: And we mentioned the work of the Reverend Cotton Mather and Dr. Zabdiel Boylston in combating a smallpox outbreak in Boston in 1721 using a technique called variolation. But what we don't say what Tracy just learned was that Mather first heard about this practice from Onesimus, an enslaved man Mather's congregation had bought for him. Onesimus told Mather about variolation and that it was commonly used among Africans.
0: So it seemed like a good time to reshare that old episode with this new-to-us tidbit. We'll link to an article from the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard with more information about Onesimus.
1: One last note. Uh, we actually say in this show that smallpox is the only disease that's been eradicated thanks to humanity's effort. Uh, but we learned afterward that Rinderpest is another, uh, formally declared eradicated in 2011, about two years before this podcast originally came out. So keep that in mind as you listen.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to talk about smallpox. Super fun topic. <laughs> well, and it's been uh, pretty much gone for long enough that I think most people don't really have a sense of just what it was like. Like, I think the closest equivalent most people have today is chicken pox. But even now... And that doesn't
1: touch it in terms of horrifyingness. Yeah. No,
0: even now that we have chicken pox vaccine, a lot of people have never experienced chicken pox. And I, coincidentally, never got chicken pox. What? Yeah, I had to be uh, vaccinated for it as a grown-up. What? Because I never got it as a child. Neither did my brother. So smallpox, is it's not like super chickenpox. It's been around for longer than recorded history, and it probably originated in Africa more than 10,000 years ago. And it spread around the world following migration and trade. We have physical evidence that it existed as far back as 1156 BCE, thanks to the mummified head of Ramses V, which has evidence of smallpox physically. Uh, it was also described in writing in China and India at about the same time, but based on all that knowledge, it's pretty clear that smallpox existed before writing did. Yeah.
1: And there are several types of smallpox, and there are, there's a range of possible complications that can come from it, but in general, uh, it causes these small pus-filled lesions on the skin, and, uh, people that have it also get a fever normally and other flu-like symptoms. And when it existed in the wild, uh it was fatal in roughly 30% of all cases. For babies, that number was between 80 and 90%, so a really high mortality rate. And in the 18th century, as much as 10% of the population of Europe died of smallpox every year, and more than 300 million people died of smallpox during the 20th century. Those are numbers that I bet people were not expecting.
0: No, they're pretty enormous. Yeah, that's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a contagious disease. And once somebody had it, there was really not anything that could be done. Most treatments that people tried did not have any real medical value. One was called the red treatment, which was basically surrounding the patient with the color red. But the patient did have to be cleaned, fed, and cared for until the scabs fell off. And that was a few weeks after the pox started to form. Smallpox was contagious that entire time. So it spread really easily among families, caregivers, and other people who were living in close quarters.
1: And the people that survived having smallpox often had extensive and disfiguring scarring. There were actually etiquette manuals that offered advice on how to word a condolence letter to your friend after her lovely face had been horribly disfigured and scarred by smallpox. Many survivors also faced other complications, including blindness. And before its eradication, smallpox actually caused more blindness than any other condition.
0: So this disease killed royalty. It changed lines of succession. It struck down armies in the field and shifted the tide of battle. An epidemic near the end of the Roman Empire killed almost 7 million people. And when it was introduced into the Americas, it devastated the native population And it was also spread to native peoples on purpose as a form of germ warfare during the French and Indian War. It was so influential and terrifying that many polytheistic religions have gods of smallpox. And there are Christian saints and martyrs associated with it and its victims as well. So smallpox was a disease deeply dreaded and feared. And it did not mess around. But one man... It's the credit.
1: Thankfully, changed all of this. And that
0: was Edward Jenner. And he's the topic of most of this podcast. Yeah, but before we talk about him, we kind of need to talk about, like, the state of the world before he came along. We've talked a little bit about the germ theory of disease and how it did not really start to spread around the United States and Europe until the 1800s. But people weren't completely clueless about ideas like contagiousness and immunity before this point people knew that if you were around someone who had smallpox for a long time, you would probably get it too.
1: And for more than 2,000 years, people have also known that a person who had survived smallpox wasn't likely to get it again. Uh, so smallpox survivors were tapped often to care for the sick because they appeared to be protected.
0: So it's not really a far jump from those two ideas to the thought that maybe you could give somebody smallpox on purpose so that they would be immune later. Sort of how, like, pre-vaccine, sometimes parents would send their kids to play with somebody who had chickenpox to get it over with. I guess there are probably parents who don't want to immunize their children who still do this, but it would take a lot more effort since chickenpox is a lot more rare now. Yeah,
1: and that was often done, especially with young children, because allegedly, if you get chickenpox younger, it's less horrible than if you get it older.
0: Getting chickenpox as an adult can be... Extremely horribly bad, painful, which is why I have had a vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> so the the thing is that for the most part, this whole method of um, of exposing to somebody to smallpox on purpose, actually a whole lot grosser than chickenpox parties.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, the earliest attempts to deal with this uh, happened in China at least a thousand years ago. And in 1670, traders introduced the practice to the Ottoman Empire, where it started to progress to other nations. Sometimes it was as simple as deliberately exposing yourself to someone with a relatively mild case of the disease.
0: But a more direct method, and also the grosser one, was to use a needle or a lancet to extract matter from an infected person's smallpox lesions and put it under the skin of a healthy person. Sometimes the material would be dried out or stored at room temperature for a while, so it wasn't as lethal as fresh material. And another method was to inhale dried material from a smallpox lesion or a crushed up smallpox scab. Yay! Yeah, I know. Uh, This sounds just terrible. It sounds like the sort of thing that we would hear about on Sawbones that we keep uh, mentioning is like a thing that's just a terrible idea. But that actually worked. Yeah. After this
1: exposure, the healthy person would usually wind up with a case of smallpox that was less severe than if it had been caught naturally. So you can see where there would be a certain appeal to this concept. Like, I will at least control my exposure and hopefully get a mild version rather than just cross my fingers and wait for the really horrible case of smallpox to hit me. Wait for
0: disfigurement, blindness, and death. Yeah. This practice became known as both inoculation and variolation. So inoculation is from a Latin word meaning to graft or to implant. So think of like grafting a bud from one tree to another. Variolation comes from variola, which is the name for the virus that causes smallpox. And then variola comes from Latin words, meaning spots or pimples. And the practice of
1: variolation spread first through India, China, and Africa. And by the 18th century, it had made its way to Europe as well. It was slow to catch on, though. Uh, in the early 18th century, Edward Wortley Montague was ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. And while he was there, his wife, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, whose face had been scarred from her own bout of smallpox, learned about variolation. And in 1718,
0: she ordered the embassy surgeon to perform variolation on her son. This procedure was successful, and she had her daughter inoculated in 1721 after they got back to London.
1: The medical community in England was not too sure about all this. Uh, So naturally, the next people who were variolated were prisoners. Uh, We've discussed in previous podcasts that there are times when people say... It's not so much risk to use a prisoner or a criminal. Let's just put them at risk.
0: Yeah, there there are many ethical considerations yeah. in the history of smallpox. But from there,
1: uh, and some successful uh, experimentation, the practice spread through the English aristocracy
0: and into the rest of Europe. Variolation made its way to the Americas shortly thereafter. Reverend Cotton Mather and Dr. Zabdiel Boylston used it to try to curb a smallpox epidemic in Boston in 1721. About half of Boston's population got the, uh, got the virus during this outbreak. About 14% of those who got it naturally died. And that compared to 2% of the people who had been variolated. So Mather and Boylston documented all of their progress. And with these results that showed that it was overall a success, you know, variolating people was way less deadly than getting smallpox naturally. The practice started to become more common on both sides of the Atlantic.
1: And variolation worked, but it was not foolproof. Uh, People still died, as we just mentioned, and survivors uh, still had scars after they recovered. Sometimes a variolated patient would spread smallpox to other people accidentally, causing an outbreak anyway. And other diseases, like syphilis, hepatitis, and scrofula, which is usually caused by the same bacterium that causes tuberculosis, could also be transmitted during this variolation process. Overall, uh, variolation was about 80% effective, and it
0: had a 2% mortality rate. So it was better than getting smallpox <laughs> the normal way. But there was still a lot of room for improvement, and that leads us to Edward Jenner. He was born on May 17, 1749, in Barclay, Gloucestershire. He was the eighth of nine children, and he went to live with his brother after being orphaned at the age of five. In 1757, when he was eight years old, he was inoculated for smallpox.
1: He started an apprenticeship when he was in his early teens, working with a surgeon and apothecary named Daniel Ludlow. He was Ludlow's apprentice for several years. And as the story goes, it was while there that he heard a dairymaid say that she would never get smallpox because she had had cowpox.
0: Cowpox, like smallpox, is a virus. Cows get it and it causes them to get these sores on their udders. People who came in contact with these sores while they were milking could get cowpox from the cow, and it would cause similar sores on their hands and lower arms. This was normally a really mild disease. And the idea that someone who had had cowpox before would not also get smallpox was either conventional wisdom or country superstition, depending on who you asked. And in addition to all that, milkmaids were reputed to have extremely beautiful complexions. They're the subjects of poems because of their lovely yeah. skin, presumably because none of them had smallpox scars. Jenner continued to study
1: medicine and surgery for the next several years, apprenticing with George Harwick in 1764 and with John Hunter at St. George's Hospital in London after he turned 21. And in addition to his interest in medicine, uh, Jenner was also adept at other areas of science. He studied and observed animals, he collected fossils, and he helped classify newly documented specimens. He also, something of a renaissance man, liked to
0: play the violin and write poems. And uh, as we have, in a practice we have alluded to previously in a recent episode, he was a balloonist. And he built and flew his own hydrogen balloon.
1: Ballooning was all the rage at this point. Uh, and in
0: 1796, he decided
1: to try an experiment, building off the idea that cowpox granted immunity from smallpox. What if, as with variolation, you could deliberately give someone cowpox?
0: So a dairy maid named Sarah Nelms came to see Jenner about the sore that she had on her hand and uh, he examined her, said it looked like cowpox, and she confirmed that one of the cows that she milked had recently had cowpox.
1: And the cow that gave Sarah smallpox was named Blossom. Uh, Blossom's skin is actually on display in the University of London Library at St. George's Hospital. It was removed for restoration in 2010 and replaced in August of 2013. Uh, she was a Gloucester cow, which has horns in both the males and the females. Which
0: is why if you see the pictures of the skin, it has horns on it. Yeah. Which some people who are not used to seeing female cows with horns may be confusing. Yeah. I think it's kind of darling that her name was Blossom. And a little morbid that our skin is still on display. Yeah. In a museum. It's such a, a wonderfully morbid thing.
1: It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. For just
0: being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. So, Jenner extracted material from this sore. And he used it to inoculate an 8-year-old boy named James Phipps. And he was the son of Jenner's gardener. So what he did was he scratched James's arm and he rubbed the material from Sarah's sore into it. James went through a range of mild flu-like symptoms, and then he recovered.
1: A couple of months later, Jenner inoculated James again, this time with fresh material from a smallpox sore. When James didn't get smallpox, Jenner concluded that his experiment was in fact a success. He decided to call his method vaccination from the Latin words for cow and cowpox.
0: So before we talk about how this wound up radically changing the world... We would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the other people who had come to the same conclusion at about the same time. Twenty-two years earlier, an affluent tenant farmer named Benjamin Jesty had performed this same basic procedure on his wife and his two sons during a smallpox outbreak in their area. He'd gotten the idea because he and two of his milkmaids had all had cowpox before, and none of them had ever gotten smallpox in spite of being exposed to it repeatedly
1: jesty took his wife and two children to a field where some cows were infected with cowpox and he used a stocking needle to transfer some material from the cow's sores to their arms his wife ar- his wife's arm became infected and she almost lost it but all three of his family members came through the outbreak without being infected his sons were inoculated with smallpox later on and had no reaction, and they were all exposed to smallpox multiple times afterwards. None so of them ever got it. Despite the arm infection, it was a successful, right. though unsettling, operation.
0: Yes, and Jesse was the target of all kinds of derision and scorn in his community because of what he had done. And while word did spread of his actions in the local medical community, there's no written evidence that Jenner ever heard about it. A
1: schoolmaster named Peter Plett also put cowpox to similar use in Holstein, Germany in 1791, using material from a cow on his employer's two daughters. They were the only children to survive an epidemic that struck three years later, but one of them also had a strong enough reaction when he did this experiment that he didn't go further with the idea.
0: A third man, John Fuster, was a variolation practitioner, and in 1763 he variolated two brothers— And one of them, who turned out to have had cowpox before, didn't have any reaction. So his brother got smallpox in a mild form, but nothing happened to him. So consequently, Fuster wondered if cowpox might prevent smallpox, and he wrote a paper on the idea that he never published. He made some attempts at inoculating people with cowpox at roughly the same time as Jenner made his first attempts, although it's really unclear as to whether he and Jenner who did know each other, ever talked about it. So then we sort of get to the question
1: of what separates Jenner from these men and what earned him the nickname of Father of Immunology. And it's that he made vaccination his life's work.
0: Yeah, there have been several articles that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years that are sort of like, Jenner doesn't deserve this title. So-and-so did it 20 years before he did. And while it is true that he wasn't the first person ever in history to try this thing... He absolutely devoted himself to trying to, uh, to to protect as many people as possible from smallpox, using cowpox from this point on. So much so that his other medical practice actually started to suffer. The first thing that he did was that he submitted a paper to the Royal Society in 1797, but it was rejected, and he got a note from the society's president that he really should be concerned about his reputation. So...
1: Uh, Taking that into consideration, he repeated his experiment a few times. And then he wrote up an inquiry into the causes and effects of the variolae vaccinae, a disease discovered in some of the western counties of England, particularly Gloucestershire and known by the name of cowpox. Just a lengthy title for a paper.
0: I love the lengthy paper titles. (laughs) You can read this one online for free.
1: Yeah. uh, And that paper detailed his theories about the origins of cowpox. He thought it came from a horse ailment, which is uh, casually called grease, which was later disproved. And he listed a number of case studies involving cowpox and smallpox immunity. He published this paper, financing it himself the next
0: year. So the response to his publication and his ongoing vaccination work was mixed at best. People were really reluctant to believe that what he was proposing could work. Cowpox was also not a really prevalent illness, especially in towns and cities, which made it kind of hard to get the material people needed to make vaccinations. Uh, one of the things about variolation was that there was smallpox everywhere. You could easily get smallpox to inoculate other people with. Not so much so with cowpox. Because precautions like hand washing and sterilization were not being used yet, sometimes cowpox vaccines would become adulterated with smallpox, through cross-contamination. That would make it look like a person had gotten smallpox from their cowpox vaccine. And people who made money off of variolation were super opposed to Jenner's idea. As you can imagine, yes. that would be a
1: natural response. Uh, people also objected to vaccination on religious grounds or because they believed that cows were lesser than humans and so that humans should not be contaminated with material from cows. Clergy would speak against the idea of, quote, contaminating humans with a substance from a sick animal.
0: The Anti-Vaccine Society published a satirical cartoon called The Cowpox" or The Wonderful Effects of the New Inoculation. And this was a drawing of a group of people all being vaccinated, and they were all growing cow heads out of their bodies. This was drawn by British satirist James Gilray.
1: A year after Jenner had published his pamphlet, he conducted a survey to try to conclusively prove that cowpox did in fact confer smallpox immunity. Only once that was done, with the answer being a pretty decisive yes, it does in fact confer smallpox immunity, did vaccination gradually begin to gain acceptance.
0: And we'll, We're going to talk about how this changed the world in a minute. But first, we're going to talk about Jenner's personal life before we get to that point. So it's a lot of what really was successful happened after he died. In 1788, he got married and he eventually had four children. He built a cottage in the garden where he would give free vaccinations to poor children, and he called this the Temple of Vaccinia. Jenner would give vaccine to anybody who
1: asked him for it for free. So the actual vaccination work was carried out by many other people. He started to call himself the vaccine clerk to the world, and he developed new ways to collect and preserve cowpox material for the vaccines. Jenner put so much effort into vaccination that his own medical practice, as Tracy mentioned earlier, really started to fail.
0: Around the start of the 19th century, Jenner gradually started to pull away from public life. His work had drawn huge praise, but it had also gotten a whole lot of judgment and scorn from people who feared what he was doing or questioned his practices.
1: He received quite a number of awards and honors for his work, including several honorary degrees. And he received a medal from Napoleon in 1804. And Napoleon so respected him that he was able to negotiate the release of British prisoners of war during the Napoleonic Wars. Statues have been erected in Jenner's honor all over the world.
0: Parliament granted Jenner 10,000 pounds in 1802 for his vaccination work, and that was followed by another 20,000 pounds five years later, and this is millions of today's dollars. Vaccination gradually started to overtake variolation in popularity, and in 1840, England prohibited variolation outright since vaccination was, had at this point, proved to be much safer. And this sparked
1: protests from people who objected to vaccination for one reason or another and wanted to have variolation available as a choice.
0: Tragically, although Jenner did so much work to stop the spread of smallpox, at the time, tuberculosis was still a very common and deadly illness. And it also was not particularly treatable. He lost his oldest son to tuberculosis in 1810 and his wife in 1815, and he had other deaths in his family in the intervening years. Edward
1: Jenner did not, as was his custom, come down for breakfast on January 24th of 1823, and he was found in his room having had a massive stroke. Uh, He died shortly thereafter on January 26th of 1823.
0: Now let's get back to how, really, the, the groundwork that Edward Jenner laid actually change the world.
1: Yeah, uh, as we mentioned before, although other people had made this same discovery that Jenner did, and even earlier than he had, it was still Jenner's tireless work that really started the world on a path to eradicating smallpox. It is, at least as of when we are recording this, the only disease that mankind has eradicated from the planet. Uh, currently, the only samples of it that remain are in laboratories.
0: Vaccination was pretty prevalent in Europe by eighteen hundred. In 1803, and really just one of my favorite stories that maybe we'll do a whole episode on later, Francisco Xavier de Balmas, acting on behalf of King Charles IV, started an expedition from Spain to South America via the Canary Islands. And the goal of this expedition was to deliver a vaccine to South America and Asia. So at this point, the preservation methods that were used to uh, to make the vaccine, just it, they couldn't keep it potent over such a long period and hot voyage. So they had to come up with a different method, which was that they rounded up 22 orphans who had never had cowpox or smallpox and used them as a chain of human carriers to allow the vaccine to reach the Caribbean. There are many ethical impl- implications it's of this practice. Simultaneously ingenious and a little spine-chilling. Yeah. yeah. So basically they would, you know, infect one person before the voyage started and then pass it from person to person. As they crossed the sea. So, so many moral layers to what we were talking about. Yeah, I cannot even scratch the surface of it with my, my pitiful moral attempts.
1: <laughs> but in 1807, uh, Bavarians became the first to require military recruits to be vaccinated for smallpox, since troop movements had always been a major factor in the spread of the disease.
0: In 1853, England made smallpox vaccination compulsory. Other nations followed suit, and the rate of smallpox infection really dramatically started to drop.
1: Resistance to vaccines continued to grow as more nations began to require it. Nobel Prize-winning writer George Bernard Shaw, who caught smallpox in 1881 in spite of having been vaccinated as a baby, called vaccination, quote, a peculiarly filthy piece of witchcraft. Jenner had thought the protection granted by childhood vaccination would last forever, but that turned out to not be the case.
0: Yes. And really, there were some real verifiable problems with the earliest vaccines. Because of the state of medical knowledge at the time, they simply were not being made or given in a way that was sterile or safe. There was no quality control. There was no method of standardizing how much of the virus a person got with any given vaccination. Plus, the first vaccinations were often, as the case was with the orphans who were crossing the ocean, they were made from arm to arm, from person to person, and that would spread disease from the first person or wherever on down the line. It wasn't until the 1840s that people started instead passing the infection from cows to cows and then mass producing the vaccine from cow material only, which did cut down on some of the related bloodborne infections that could be passed along.
1: And unfortunately, Jenner's record also was not perfect. Uh, some of his conclusions, including the connection to the grease disease in horses and the idea that immunity was permanent, proved to be false during his lifetime. He'd also written a study on the behavior of newly hatched cuckoo birds that was correct, but wasn't proved to be so until many years later. So people disbelieved his conclusions and used that as another strike against him. Basically, they said, you were wrong about this.
0: So it wasn't just kind
1: of their argument fodder. It
0: wasn't even just that he was wrong. What he had, what he had proven was basically that, that newly hatched cuckoos will uh, throw the other eggs and the other hatchlings out of the nest. And everybody thought they were not physically capable of doing that. And so it was not only that they were like, you're wrong. It was like, you're wrong and that's ridiculous. But in fact, cuckoos are jerks. Cuckoos are jerks, <laughs> and they do that for real. And he had watched them do it with his own eyes. Yeah, but
1: uh, basically anything that he said or published that turned out to be wrong or was believed to be wrong and not proven until later uh, really became fuel for the anti-vaccination fire.
0: Another big log on that fire was that although he had many years of medical training, he hadn't passed any kind of comprehensive medical exam when he started doing his immunization work. Those weren't compulsory when he went through his training, and the fact that he hadn't passed the equivalent of the boards became this huge bone of contention. And some people just
1: thought that vaccination wasn't necessary. Uh, They claimed that the rate of smallpox decline was really just because of improvements in general sanitation and hygiene.
0: As the rate dropped, which meant that people felt less threatened by smallpox on a day-to-day basis, uh, objection to vaccination became more and more vehement patent medicine pushers and other clacks also started to deliberately spread anti-vaccine sentiments as those practices started to grow in the 1800s.
1: And there are some legitimate ethical issues that surround vaccination, you know, some of which we've talked about before. Uh, earlier in this podcast, compulsory vaccination was viewed as wealthy people invading the privacy of poorer people and robbing them of their freedom of choice.
0: In some nations, there were layers and layers and layers of entangled religious and ethical considerations. In India, for example, there was the fact that the vaccine came from cows, which was symbolically sacred to many Hindus. The vaccine was also being passed from person to person through a society that had a really rigid caste system. And the whole thing was wrapped up under this umbrella of British colonialism. So as with the the chain of human orphan carriers... Uh, That's a whole lot of moral and ethical discussion to try to unpack.
1: Yeah, it's really problematic. And regardless of all of these considerations, the end result was the only time ever in human history that a contagious disease had been eradicated through the efforts of human beings. So that almost adds another, like, dicey layer of people being able to say, well, the end justifies the means, but then there was also some ethical weirdness along the way. Right? It becomes a really complicated issue.
0: Smallpox was eradicated in most of Europe and North America by the 1950s, but it was still really prevalent in many other parts of the world at that point. In 1967, the World Health Organization spearheaded a global vaccination effort, which was met with a lot of skepticism. The vaccine in use at this point was freeze-dried, It was generally made from animal lymph, and it was uh, made to much, much, much higher standards of quality control and purity and sanitation and everything else uh, than what was around in Jenner's time. We were not just extracting material from sores and sticking it into people anymore. it is still so
1: good. it's the grossest <laughs> thing it gives you the wiggles. Uh in some regions the goal was to vaccinate everyone, but when that wasn't possible they turned to a method that was known as ring vaccination. And since smallpox spreads through close contact rather than casual contact, so you'd get it from living in the same house with someone, but not from walking past an infected person on the street. Uh, the focus was on vaccinating people who came into close contact with someone who had been exposed. So getting a vaccine within three days of exposure dramatically decreases the likelihood of getting smallpox or it enables you to only get a very light case of it.
0: Yeah, so when there would be a reported case of smallpox, they would uh, sort of come and immunize everyone around that person and cut off this one infection vector uh, from spreading it to other people. Had there been multiple stable strains of smallpox, which there weren't, there's really just one main one, uh, or if it had also been carried by animals, this whole eradication attempt would have been a lot more difficult than it was.
1: And the last occurrence of the most serious form of smallpox, known as variola major, was in Bangladesh in 1975. The last naturally occurring case of smallpox was in Somalia in 1977. And on May 8th of 1980, the World Health Organization declared that the world was now free of smallpox. Like we said, first and only time ever for that to happen.
0: Yeah. There have been some diseases that have kind of faded from history thanks to changes in diet and sanitation and that kind of thing. So there are diseases that used to be common that really aren't anymore. But this is really the only time that people have said, we are going to get rid of this disease and then did it. There there are some others that are getting kind of close to that point now. Mm-hmm. But uh, as of right now, um, which is October of 2013, smallpox is the only one. Although it's been eradicated and, you know, you cannot generally get it from another person unless that person has been infected in some kind of lab accident. There are many nations that maintain a stockpile of smallpox vaccine in case of a biological weapon attack using smallpox. Right now, the only known smallpox virus samples still in existence are in laboratories in the United States and Russia. And every once in a while, uh, everybody involved kind of revisits the idea about whether we should destroy those. Uh, The most recent conversations i've seen about it are from 2011 um that like there had been uh yes we are destroying them as far back as in the 80s but they're still around um and the most recent conversations about it the the recommendation is you know there might actually be a need for us to have intact uh samples of the original virus if there were something like a terror attack using smallpox so that remains to be discussed for a long time i think
1: yeah, probably under lock and key.
0: Yeah, uh, and the home that Jenner had is
1: today known as the Edward Jenner Museum.
0: You can visit it. You can visit it and, and see the Temple of Vaccinia. <sighs> I just love they called it that. I do. It's sort of cute. So yes, uh, we we got some questions about vaccination after we talked about uh, Elsa Lanchester and and her mother
1: not wanting her uh, to be vaccinated.
0: Yeah. And that kind of led me to what, how did, how did, I knew the basic story. It was about Jenner and cows. Now I know a lot more of it and how super gross it was. (laughs) We could have been way more graphic in our language in this episode. And we mostly have not been because I don't think I could stomach it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're not trying to be gentle with you. We're trying (laughs) to be gentle with us. Yes. I could probably stomach (laughs) it, but
0: I was telling. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody